Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Oh, hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 69 here. We are having a really, really fun chat about rhetoric, the ancient classical art, but our guest Jay Heinrichs makes it so much fun. And uh, this episode, shout out to my high school rhetoric teacher, Judy Fettermeyer, for being amazing and teaching me how to write good. I appreciate that. And it's a shame we didn't have his book available back in high school because it's uh, quite the resource nowadays for for high school students as well as business folks and and all kinds of folks who want to learn how to make arguments, be persuasive, and all that good stuff. So you're going to learn, one, how shifting tenses can ease tensions. Two, a huge tip from Donald Trump about speaking in 12-second periods. And three, the essential steps for making a persuasive argument. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F69. Here's a quick bit about Jay. Jay Heinrichs is the author of the best-selling book, Thank You for Arguing, What Aristotle, Lincoln, and Homer Simpson Can Teach Us About the Art of Persuasion. His most recent book, Word Hero, teaches how to craft memorable content. Combining tested tools of classical rhetoric with modern neuroscience, he's given presentations, workshops, and consults around the world. Jay has served clients including Southwest Airlines, NASA, the Pentagon, Walmart, Ogilvy UK, Mindshare, the National Association of Realtors, Harvard, Dartmouth, University of Virginia, Beachbody, and Kaiser Permanente. He maintains one of the leading language websites, figurospeech.com along with ArguLab.com. With more than 30 years in publishing as a writer, editor, and executive, Jay has written for several dozen publications, from the New York Times Magazine to Reader's Digest. Here's Jay. Jay, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Uh, It's a pleasure, Pete. Well, I I think congratulations are in order. Isn't it not true that just recently your revised edition of of Thank You for Arguing hit the, the coveted New York Times bestseller list? Yes, it did. Booyah. Woo-hoo. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's so fun. As I as I start working with uh, with guests in this, this podcasting game, it's so funny. They'll say, oh, you know, when are you planning on putting up? Uh, could you put the episode up a little earlier because we're trying to make the list? I was like, oh, oh, of course, yeah, the, the New York Times bestseller list. Of course, yes, I'm in the biz. I know. I know. The list. Very good. So, Capital L. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, it's, it's a, the book is an overnight sensation. It was published in 2007 and just made the best of it. <laughs> well, that's cool. Better late than never. And, and that's cool. And, and it's a kudos that it's still appreciated and used in a lot of places. Uh, it's a darn shame in my rhetoric class, it was not yet in existence. So I, I didn't have that in my AP rhetoric going on. Boy, instead you had Aristotle and Cicero. <laughs> you were slumming, right? <laughs> That's me. Well, so so tell me, this book, Thank You for Arguing, is used in, in many different contexts. And so I want to hear the most sort of what you think would be the most sort of juicy, interesting, useful, you know, themes and tips that apply to a, a young professional working in a, in a corporate environment. Well, the book has more than 100 tools or persuasion techniques that you can go off of, but you know what, I'll tell you, the reason I wrote it was to show people how to think rhetorically. And by that, I mean how to think like a rhetorician. So rhetoric isn't taught 
that much anymore. You were lucky to get a class. It is growing fast now in high schools and colleges. But it's the original art of leadership. Everybody used to study it. Alexander the Great studied it with Aristotle. Julius Caesar, William Shakespeare, every one of the American founders studied rhetoric. So why should corporate professional learn to think rhetorically? Well, because it teaches you, it taught me how to write and think persuasively, how to understand audiences and markets better, and how to produce something to say on every occasion and have people like you when you say something. So for example, here's a juicy bit. When someone gets angry with you, watch what tense you're in, whether you're in the past tense, the future tense, or the present tense. Now, you'll find that An angry person will almost always speak in the past or present tense. You did this horrible thing in the past or you're a real jerk in the present. (laughs) So one way to take the anger out is to switch to the future. Let's talk about how we're going to fix this. Let's find a solution. Let's not describe what kind of person I am or what sort of atrocity I committed. Well, that is fascinating. And so you sort of see that time and time again is that angry people tend to focus on those tenses as opposed to this is going to ruin everything, future tense catastrophizing. Well, this is going to ruin everything. It's actually kind of an opening. At least it does shift into the future, which is where choices make a difference. And by argument, I'm really talking about deliberative argument, which is a particular kind of argument. And that's an argument about choices, about how you're going to influence the future. So talking about what a jerk I am is really doing nothing for the future. I'm going to be a jerk forever. Right. (laughs) If you're talking about what I did in the past, well, the only way we're going to affect the future is to talk about how I'm going to fix what I did. And we're back in the future again. So when you say what I'm talking about is going to ruin everything, then I can say, all right, let's talk about how not only not to ruin everything, but how to make a better future. Mm, that's so, so good. And so you're saying the the wrong answer then in that circumstance is to is to sort of argue or fight over, well, I didn't know, or I, it's someone else's fault for not giving me the data. Like, like that's just going to keep you in a bad spot. Exactly. One of the things that I say in the book is the first thing to do when you find yourself in a disagreement is to set your goal. What do you want? What do you want out of this thing? Now, if you happen to be in a committed relationship, like a marriage, maybe your goal ought to be to stay married. Okay. Uh, You know, (laughs) instead of like, maybe try not to win, just stay married. On the other hand, in a business setting, you want to maintain a good relationship with your colleagues. So that's an important goal. Or you might think, Maybe the audience I'm really speaking to is not the person who's disagreeing with me, but other people who are listening in. How do I impress them? How do I persuade them to take my choice instead of this other person's? And that's a goal. So you you set that goal and then you work toward that goal. You don't simply push back against what the other person said. Okay, well, that, that is right off the gate. These are some handy tidbits. Uh, any others leaping to mind for you, or should I do my job as an interviewer? I don't want to blow my wad, Pete. I got, a, <laughs> I got, I got 120 of these. We go through all of them. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, I, we got to leave a little something for the book, and so we will. So, well, I want to maybe just zoom out a little bit because I was I was chatting with with my fiance, so I'll keep some of those lessons associated with arguing well in mind in terms of the goal and the relationship maintenance. So we were just talking about 
My goodness, it seems like in the United States these days and in, in politics in particular, things really are an extra dose of polarizing, close-minded, partisan. It's just like folks tend to just sort of believe what they want to believe. And well, it's just not a rosy situation. And I, I just think it, it's miles and miles away from like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which just <laughs> numerous sessions, numerous lengths of time, uncomfortable settings, traveling out there to really hear, think, and reason about, huh, which one of these guys would be the best for us? So can you maybe give us a, a bit of a, of a historical or commentary on how did we get here and what's our cause for, for hope for the United States people to, to get back to, to thinking and, and having some, some rhetoric and, and thank you for arguing type exchanges? Other than having everyone on earth buy my book, <laughs> I'll tell you what, in the business world, among my clients, I find people are getting better and better at working in teams, presenting solutions, persuading each other in ways that make better choices for their companies. But you're obviously not talking about business, are you? (laughs) Not in this particular inquiry. Yeah. Okay. So politics. These days, there have been obviously some major changes in politics. Now, you talk about the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Now, obviously – that was a greatest hit of politics. <laughs> there was a lot of nasty stuff going on in politics when Lincoln and jo- Douglas weren't on the stage. So we're seeing the best of the best. And so it's a little too easy to okay. get nostalgic about our forebears. <laughs> that being said, one big difference is that in politics, there's a big problem that's going on. And it doesn't really have to do with what we believe in or what we don't believe in. The fact is that politicians have little reason anymore to persuade. They don't have to. Most members of Congress are in safe, gerrymandered districts where they're guaranteed their job, right? Mm. Their, Their own supporters are already the people living all around them. Now, they spend most of their time raising money instead of persuading votes. So they're persuading donors. There's a lot of really good persuasion going on with rich people, not with voters. Now, even at the presidential level, it's all about turnout, not so much the undecided voter. And the reason is there are very few undecided voters in the country. It's between four and eight percent, depending on the election. Now, at all levels, what's happening is political operatives and consultants work communication and marketing content strategies at the micro level, at the micro audience level, targeting these tiny groups and saying what they want to hear. So it's really not what the politicians are saying. And actually, speeches do very little. Advertising, lots of studies show that television advertising does very little. What's Mm. really going on is on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter This is where the persuasion is going on. And it's awful persuasion because it's very tiny groups. So there's very little opportunity for groups to hear anything that they don't believe in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you get some of this consolidation in in belief. So Lincoln and Douglas, as you pointed out, they spoke knowing their audience. They were looking at them. But, you know, their larger audience wasn't there when they were speaking. Here's another big factor. Their audience mostly were readers. Lincoln and Douglas knew that their debates were going to be published in written form. Mm. Lincoln knew that when he gave a speech, it would be published and everybody would read it. 
He grew up reading two things as a kid, as a boy. One was the Bible, and the other was the speeches of Daniel Webster, who was the greatest orator of his time, United States Senator, Secretary of State, brilliant lawyer, great politician. Daniel Webster was Lincoln's education. And Webster would give these speeches, and then he would edit them. And they were the bestsellers of their day. Everybody read Daniel Webster, no matter what they believed in. So this was a nation of readers. Mm. We're not anymore. We now look at YouTube in 12-second bites. If you can get anybody to watch a YouTube video that doesn't involve a cute animal and watch it for more than 12 seconds, you've pulled off a miracle. Okay. And so as a result, people are talking in sound bites that look ridiculous in print. Look at Donald Trump. Very successful in his talks. He speaks in these 12-second bursts, and I hope we can get back to that because that's really a great technique for people, by the way, in presentations. But they look terrible when you read them. They're great if you see them in a speech, especially if you're in a crowd. So what's the answer to all this? I think the answer lies in educating young people in the ways that these content agencies and political consultants manipulate us. My book gets read by thousands of high school and college students, which gives me hope, at least for sales in the future, and maybe maybe even in the country. I think the fact is that rhetoric really does need to be studied more so that people can see how this manipulation goes on. It also makes people eager to hear the other side, if only to engage in it in interesting ways. Mm. Oh, that's great. So, well, I do want to make sure we kind of revisit the 12-second bursts and and more. So maybe... We talk about revisiting this. I think some people just maybe don't even have a taste for it. They say, ooh, arguing, that feels like conflict. That feels uncomfortable in my, in my gut and on the back of my neck. Uh, how should we, we think about arguing or rhetoric in an affirming light? Well, that's a great question. I, and I think it comes down to the fact that people tend to confuse an argument with a fight, as if an argument and a fight are the same thing. So in a fight, you're purpose is to win. Your goal is to win the fight, right? To Mm -hmm. get the other side to admit defeat. You're going to dominate the other person and win. All right. In an argument, on the other hand, you try to win over the other person to make them feel as if they won while you get what you want. So in in the book, I, I give this example of this disagreement I had with my son, George. This was some years ago. He's all grown up now. At the time, he was a teenager, and I was in the bathroom first thing in the morning, and I went to brush my teeth, and I discovered that the toothpaste tube had all been squeezed dry. And being the father of a teenage son, I knew who the likely culprit was. So I yelled through the closed bathroom door saying, George, who used up all the toothpaste? And I hear this sarcastic voice coming from the other side saying, that's not the point, is it, Dad? No. The, po- <laughs> the, po- the point is, how are we going to keep this from happening again? <laughs> now, he had grown up hearing me talk about these rhetorical <laughs> techniques, including switching to the future when you yourself get in trouble. And the thing is, you know, I was so pleased that he had actually been listening all that time, you know, that, it, that I had no idea he'd been paying attention, that I actually decided to let him win. So I said, okay, George, you win. Now, will you please get me some toothpaste? And you know what? He went down into our freezing basement. We live in New Hampshire. It was midwinter. And he got me a tube of toothpaste. So, you know, in the book, I say, actually, George, 
I think I won that argument. He was very pleased that I had let him win the disagreement, but I got a teenage boy to run an errand happily for me. Okay. That is a true (laughs) triumph for persuasion, as any parent will tell you. So, you know, and I think that that summarizes the difference between a fight and an argument. You know, I started out feeling a little angry at this jerk for (laughs) squeezing up this tube of toothpaste. And I ended up with a tube of toothpaste, refreshed, you know, with everybody happy. That's an argument. That's not a fight. Oh, that's so fun. So a world of difference between winning, like dominating versus winning them over and sort of getting your outcome, the sort of goal you established at the beginning achieved. So can you share some, I guess, key principles and tactics that contribute to arriving at that outcome more often? Well, I mentioned probably the very first thing. I mean, there are some steps that you should do habitually. And one is to set your goal. We talked about that. So there are several goals in persuasion. One is thinking about what you want to change with this disagreement. So the easiest thing to change is the mood. You can use a little bit of humor as long as it doesn't look like you're making fun of the other person, and that will lighten the mood, okay? Mm -hmm. So harder than that is to change someone's mind, what their opinion is about something. And, you know, George actually was using a technique when he said that's not the point. One great technique to change somebody's mind is to reframe the issue. And Mm -hmm. one way to do that is to say, what's this really about? By the way, it's a great way to throw people off their balance if you care to do that. If you really want to manipulate a person, you could say, is this really about toothpaste or is it about something deeper, you know? (laughs) And by the way, I say this to high school kids all the time. If you're really mad at your sibling and your sibling just comes at you for something, you could say, what's this really about? Are you okay? (laughs) Is this have to do with that lame boyfriend of yours? (laughs) Anyway, so in a business setting, of course, you don't want to be quite so obnoxious. You can say, let's talk about the larger issues here. And then what you're doing is you're reframing an issue by broadening it. And you could change people's minds that way to say, all right, this issue really isn't about the fact that we didn't make our numbers last quarter. What this is really about is the fact that we're our audience is aging out of our product. So this issue is really about whether we need to update our product, not whether we didn't make our numbers last quarter. Okay. So you're reframing the issue. That's another thing to do. And then finally, the hardest thing to do is to get someone to take an action. So you see this in elections all the time with young people. You could get them to go to the big Bernie get together <laughs> and, you know, get them all to cheer Bernie Sanders. Getting them actually to show up at the polls is much, much harder. And so you can change somebody's mood. You can get them in the mood for something. You can change their minds, which is harder. Getting them actually to take action is the hardest of all. So you can say, you can reframe the issue and say, this is about the fact that our market is aging out of our product. Getting your company actually to commit to a new product is the hardest of all. And that takes different steps. And I, I don't want to lead you through all the steps of argument, but I can, I can leave you this with this one thing. To get someone to be willing to take an action, they have to really desire the goal. 
That's the first thing. Right. So if you look at diet books, they're, they are really good at getting people to take the action of buying a diet book. So you give them desire, which is lose weight, right? Especially lose mm-hmm. weight in rapidly, a ton of weight in no time at and all. And eat what you like. <laughs> well, that's mm-hmm. part two. And that is to make it seem really easy. So eat what you like. The banana split diet, eat 20 scoops of ice cream a day and nothing else, and you will lose weight, probably in horrible ways. (laughs) So in other words, and this is, by the way, I got this straight from the philosopher Aristotle. So (laughs) the Greeks were selling each other stuff long before we Americans were doing it. And so to get action, build desire for the goal. And then make the goal itself, achieving it, seem really easy. And one way to do that, by the way, is to chunk it, divide the action you want into tiny little steps. So you can say, you know, I'm not asking you to go to the polls right now. Instead, I'm asking you to go to this website, Mm -hmm. just one step at a time. When you go to the website, then all you have to do is click on this link. When you click on the link, put in your email address. And after you do that, you know, and so on. And gradually, little by little, you find yourself leading the, you know, this trail up to the, the polling booth and, and voting for the candidate or buying a product for that matter. Mm-hmm. And so the advice there is to see if you could make it as absolutely tiny and, and hard to say no to as possible. Exactly. You've got to keep that desire in front of them all the time. Don't ever forget that. So, you know, in the content marketing world, they talk about the consumer journey, which is the path the consumer takes from first becoming aware of your brand to finally becoming a big champion of the brand and recommending it to all her friends and so on. The biggest mistake that content marketers make along that journey, you know, it's a series of tiny little steps they lead the consumer along is actually to make sure that that desire is still there, that they really fully understand that this product is amazing, it's going to make them really cool, that it's going to change their lives in all the right ways, and that it costs them practically nothing. Okay. Wow, that's good stuff. So much. Well, I want to ask all sorts of follow-ups, but why don't we we hit the quick one uh, in a 12-second burst, maybe? What's the benefit of the 12-second burst and the magic behind that number? Well, unfortunately, I always talk in more than 12 seconds, <laughs> not being a speechmaker. But all right, I have to get really nerdy on you, but I'll do it quickly. The ancient Greeks believed that the patterns of the brain worked in concert with the patterns of the rest of the body. So, for example, they believed that a single sustainable thought, an idea, an impression lasted as long as a single long human breath. Hmm. An orator's breath. I tested this theory. They called it, by the way, the period. Now, the period is where we get the idea of the punctuation mark, the end of a sentence. A sentence is the end of a thought, Hmm. right? So, okay. So a period to a Greek, it was actually what they would say in the length of a human breath that would be really memorable. And it was usually the climax of a speech. So to test whether the Greeks really knew what they were talking about and whether this still held true, I went on YouTube and I looked up all the movie speeches I could. And I looked for when the music started to well up, mm-hmm. which was you know, a signal in Hollywood terms of the climax of a speech. 
And guess what? From the moment the music wells up until the end, I did a video on this that highlights Mel Gibson. Braveheart. In Braveheart, yeah. And you, what you'll find is that they last 12 seconds, which is exactly the length of a well-sustained human breath. 12 seconds long. So Trump, Donald Trump, does, let's look at Hillary Clinton. She will climax her speeches in 12 seconds. And she'll do it once. That's the climax of the speech. You know, you don't get the music, but you can mm-hmm. tell that's the climax. Okay. Donald Trump does something very different. He borrows from stand-up comedians who speak in 12-second sort of non-sequiturs, unrelated passages. You know, they'll t- tell a joke about why your socks lost in the dryer. And then mm-hmm. they'll switch about their wife's latest diet. One thing unrelated to the other. They just talk in... What you'll find is that the most effective comedians will speak in these 12-second bursts, and that's what Donald Trump does. It's like he's telling jokes, only he's not. He's talking about building walls. He'll get up on stage, and he'll talk for 12 seconds, and then he'll stop. So it's pretty cool stuff. These Greeks knew what they were doing. I'm thinking if I want to leverage that knowledge for a maximum impact, I should be sort of thinking in particular, like, where am I going to drop something that is about 12 seconds with oomph? Is that kind of how I should think about implementing this? Well, there is something that Marcus Tullius Cicero, I love, by the way, name dropping ancient dead people. Oh, do it. You know, I was a uh, discipulus Latini back in the day. Whoa. If I said that right, the student of Latin is what I tried to say. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what, we have no idea how they pronounce those words, so you can say it any way you want. Right. <laughs> there were no recordings back then. <laughs> so what Marcus Tullius Cicero teaches is a, sort of a series of steps you take when you're writing a speech. So he tells you how to outline a speech, and it still works today. I mean, I coach clients in giving TED Talks, and mm. so... One of the things I do is I teach them the art of invention or inventio in Latin, which is basically about discovery as well as creation. And so if you look at ways for you to figure out how do you build to a climax in a speech, one way to do that is to discover what your speech's climax is. Mm. Yeah, so you know the topic, you know what you want to say, you know what you want to get out of it, and most importantly, you know your audience. You know what they believe and expect, okay? So you think, what would be the big thing that just gets everybody to their feet, mm-hmm. all right? So you think about that. That's what you think about before anything else. You don't begin to write your speech. You think about that climax of your speech. So you start with a period. That's what I would tell people. This is not your elevator speech or anything like that. It's only 12 seconds. What is Summarize what you want to say and then do it in like rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it. If you've rewritten it 30 times, it's probably not enough. I mean, Mm. that's what you really got to work on. That's what's going to be what people are going to remember and they're going to share it. That's what goes viral. Okay, so you do that, and then the rest of your TED talk kind of follows. You just follow Cicero's outline for an oration, (laughs) and then take it from there, and you're done. You're famous. Wow, that's so cool. So I guess I'm thinking now. All right, so Donald Trump just keeps doing it, and the best comedians kind of just do it again and again and again and again. These 12 second bits. Whereas you're saying if you're delivering a talk, 
an oration, you want to have a kind of one super money climax period established and, and build the rest around that. Yeah, because you have to have content. Yes. Unlike a comedian or Donald Trump at a rally, you actually have to say something. Okay. Now, I guarantee you, <laughs> I guarantee you that Donald Trump does not use that technique when he's really making a deal. Okay. He's not going in and saying, this will be the best building ever. This will be the greatest building. It'll make it be beautiful. You know, he's not saying that. He's saying, here's how the leasing will work. Here's how my branding for this building works. Here's what the material will be made of. Here's how I'm going to subcontract it, right? There's content to what he's going to say. He knows when he's talking to a crowd of people who just want to be entertained and, and worked up. He's going to be just keep them entertained. But remember, he learned how to do this on reality TV, right? where it's a content-free environment, and that's what he's exercising right now. You and I actually have to say something, as does Donald Trump when he's not up there on the stage. Okay. And that's why you have to start with, think about what it is you want to get out of this speech, and then build the content around that climax. And so I guess I'm wondering, if you are delivering even maybe more of a mundane kind of a of a situation like here is how the radio frequency network performed over the last month does this apply there in terms of like there is a climax and and a 12 second period to be focused on within there or maybe this is just not quite an appropriate fit in certain spots well i think that the that's a good point i mean there there are times when you don't want an emotional peroration as the term is Mm -hmm. There's a degree to which you get poetic and there's a degree to which you won't. And by the way, sometimes your peroration can just be really plain speech. And people might not even know that it's the climax, but it's memorable nonetheless. People will walk away repeating what you said. And that's your ultimate goal. You want people, you want what you say to go viral. Even if it's among six people in a conference room. You want them walking away repeating what you said. Now, getting back to politics, the Republicans are much better at this than Democrats. Democrats are all trying still to sound like John F. Kennedy <laughs> mm. with his like beautifully written speeches. People love Obama's speeches when he's really trying mm-hmm. because they can be very eloquent and you can read them afterwards. They still read great. But on the other hand, Republicans do something much more tricky and rhetorically useful, which is that they speak in terms of tropes, which change people's views of reality, but still sound very plain spoken. So, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds about tropes, but tropes basically, you know what a metaphor is. If mm-hmm. I say the, the moon is a balloon, you're not going to call me a liar. Right. You know, I'm just kind of being poetic, right? Yeah. But I'm making you think about the, the moon a little bit differently. I'm sort of changing the reality just a little bit. Where there are tropes that people don't understand because they weren't educated in them that Republicans use all the time, which is, you know, if you look at Ronald Reagan talking about the wealth, welfare mother, that's a trope. There is no welfare mother. I mean, there were probably a bunch of mothers on welfare, but not in the way he described this person who was having children just to make money from the government. You know, Mm. that never happened. But what he was doing and really achieved a lot doing this is they made people change people's views of what people on welfare were like. They weren't people who needed help. They were people who were exploiting the system. That's a really tricky trope. It's even got a tricky name. It's called synecdoche. You know, it's a way of 
summarizing a whole group of people in one individual who may be real or not. And the Republicans are much better than that than Democrats are. Ooh, that's so fascinating. And now to that point about being viral or the period being a climax that really gets attention, I've noticed as I am at, at different conferences and such, I like to pay attention to what people tweet from a keynoter. And I seem to often notice that it's kind of a distinction. And you talked about, you know, JFK asked not what your country can do for you, yeah. but what you could do for your country. Or they'll say, maybe someone's talking about fraternities and sororities. And they'll say, a friend will tell you what you want to hear, but a brother will tell you what you need to hear. It's, it's, there's, it's often follows that kind of a kind of quotable distinction. Any comments on that or other elements that often correspond with that 12 second climax period? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. What the Democrats tend to do instead of tropes is they speak in terms of figures or figures of speech. And those are unusual or poetic patterns of language or unusual word use of words. So when you refer to John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He's actually employing my favorite figure of all time, oh. the chiasmus. I call it the crisscross figure. So it takes Fraser Claus and then it flips it. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you do for your country. You know, it's turning it around. It's a beautiful and memorable, and you know that if Twitter existed at the time, it would have gone, <laughs> you know, totally viral right away. It would have been like with little posters with a lion on it or something, you know. <laughs> so the reason for that is that that kind of unusual language, people will at first be a little confused by it, as with any kind of poetry. Mm -hmm. And then they'll repeat it in their heads and it becomes imprinted that way. And then they feel cool when they repeat it. So that's great. The only thing is that it's really out there. You know, you know what the person is intending you know how they're trying to persuade you. And that's not the most effective form of, of rhetoric. So sometimes when things do get retweeted and go viral, that's great. I mean, I personally love it when mm -hmm. I give talks and, you know, I see on Twitter, the stuff I've said gets tweeted verbatim and it's great for my ego, but it often isn't the most important thing I'm actually trying to say. You know, it's often, that's, that's the stuff where I'm just entertaining them. Mm -hmm. I did just the other day. I was speaking to a group of students over Skype It's a school, and I said, young people are never going to change things until they start shifting their focus to the future. That's hardly something you'd want a needlepoint on a pillow. No. You know? <laughs> and yet it's like at least five people tweeted it simultaneously, and that got retweeted and it went all over the place. And it's like, you know, it's funny because I hadn't even tried to express that as something memorable, but it occurred to me in retrospect that actually word future is a trope. You're making people think differently about reality. You think about this, a teenage kid is always told about the future, but they never really think about the future, about their failure to look at it as something as if it already exists. So I think that that was what made the difference. And people, I heard back from people saying, oh my God, you changed my life. You know how teenagers will, will do that. <laughs> well, there's so many things I'd like to chat through, but I'll focus it a smidge. So can you 
you have a nice section in your book about common logical fallacies. And I think that in many times we think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty logical. I, I know a fallacy when I see one. But what are some fallacies that even smart people tend to fall for pretty often? Well, I'll tell you, you had uh, in an earlier conversation you and I had, if I'm allowed to break that, that oh, third wall. Break it. Let's break it. <laughs> <laughs> you had asked, okay, the subtitle of my book mentions Aristotle and Lincoln and Homer Simpson. Right. Why Homer Simpson? And the reason is that I was struggling to write about logical fallacies in a way that wouldn't make every reader just drop the book immediately. Like, right. <laughs> reading about logical fallacies is one of the worst forms of torture. <laughs> I like logic. I'm really interested in it. And even I can't stand to learn about logical fallacies because they're just – the human brain being as lame as it is, it comes up with new fallacies every day. You can't summarize <laughs> them all. So it occurred to me one day I was procrastinating writing the book and I was looking on the web and I actually never watched The Simpsons. We didn't have TV when the kids were little. Hmm. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I started watching The Simpsons just because I was supposed to be writing <laughs> and it was something to do. And it occurred to me that the humor in The Simpsons is almost entirely based on logical fallacies. It's on twisting logic around. So here's an example. And it's, by the way, this is a fallacy that's committed all the time by people. Homer offers Lisa a donut. And Lisa being Lisa, if you've watched The Simpsons, you know, she's kind of like the good student, mm -hmm. the good girl. She says, no, thanks, dad. Do you have any fruit? And he looks at the donut and it's this jelly filled donut. And he says, this donut has purple. Purple is a fruit. <laughs> so when he says purple is a fruit, that's a logical fallacy that you see every time you look at a package of processed food that says fortified on it. A processed food that says fortified is the same as Homer saying purple is a fruit. So this stuff that's horrible for you, <laughs> you know, it may contain 46 carcinogens, but it contains a gram of protein. Yeah. That is committing that same fallacy where you are associating a quality of one thing with the entirety of another thing. Yes. And I, I see it all the time on, uh, if I'm Googling some like health or nutrition topic, I always seem to end up in finding a gallery of, of foods that are, are going to help me achieve some outcome because it has some vitamin, like bananas have potassium. It's like, I know, I know that's not really what I'm looking for. So that seems to be that game again and again. It's like, I want an outcome. That outcome is assisted by this vitamin. Some item has this vitamin and therefore eat this thing and you'll be all set with regard to that outcome. Exactly. And it, it irritates me. <laughs> so, you know, I could name others as well. There's one I, I especially like is post hoc ergo propter hoc, <laughs> just because I like saying the Latin. There you go. That's just confusing correlation with causation. So if something is correlated with something, it happens at the same time, the assumption is that it caused it. And you see this a lot with vaccination resistors, mm. uh, people who believe that vaccinating their two-year-old children causes autism. And the thing is that the test for autism happens around the same time in a child's age as a particular kind of vaccination regime. 
And I actually worked with a healthcare company to try to figure out some ways respectfully for pediatricians to talk to vaccination-resistant mothers. And so I learned a lot about what they're doing. And it's, that's, in fact, what's happening. They're committing this classic fallacy. And what's happening now is that actually the diagnosis for autism is going to be happening sooner in the future. So you're still going to have people who refuse to believe that vaccination does not cause autism, but you're going to get fewer and fewer new converts to that because, you know, the correlation is going to separate from, mm. from the cause. And that's going to help people a lot. So you can see that, you know, fallacies can kill people. I mean, it really important stuff. That being said, most of rhetoric is not about fallacies. Most of rhetoric, in fact, isn't about logic as we learn it in school. It's really about what people believe and expect and whether they like and trust you. So I'll tell you what's even more useful, if I may, Please? than learning formal logic. Just one simple tool. If you want to get all logical, and it's a great way, by the way, for people to shift from an extreme opinion to a more moderate one, insist on defining everything. So when a politician talks about creating jobs, what does he mean by creating jobs? How is a job created exactly? Yeah. So now, what does he mean by jobs? So what kind of jobs? Temporary jobs, long-lasting jobs, good-paying jobs, minimum wage jobs, jobs with benefits, those without? When a politician talks about making Americans safe, America safe, they ask, what is safety exactly? Safe from what? So yeah. how bad is terrorism in America, if that's what you're promising to make us safe from? What exactly is terrorism? Who's committing the terrorism in America right now, and who, who do you see committing it in the future? What's the crime rate, if that's what you're talking about, compared to when we were kids? And by the way, when I was a kid, the crime rate was way higher than it is now. My parents treated us like savages. <laughs> they would let us, you know, roam around meeting strangers, partly because I think they, they had more of us back then, so we were all disposable. But <laughs> nonetheless, I think the attitude is very different. So defining things is really important. Like what is safety? What is crime? What's the crime rate? Definitions. Vague terms manipulate you, in other words, a lot more than logical fallacies. Well, we just let people get away with using terms. Here's another term, predator, in regard to anyone who is regarded as a sexual deviant or someone who has somehow hurt other people. We call that person a predator. Now, when we do that, it means that whatever they're doing cannot be stopped. It's incurable. So these people have to be kept apart from the rest of it. So it also dehumanizes them. Right. So you can't treat them in a humane way. Okay, that's fine, but it means probably spending a lot of money that could be saved, and it could mean acting in ways that are unfair and even unconstitutional. And it makes for just in general really easy, lazy thinking, which I think lies at the root of most manipulation. Wow, this is, this is so potent. So, so now could you share... Maybe I was having a lot of fun at checking out your, your video on apologies over at argulab.com. <laughs> Could you share, you know, what are some other kind of handy resources you might point listeners to on argulab.com or within your world of resources that you think could be particularly handy in a professional environment? Well, I do argulab.com. I really did for students. High school students are now 
being tortured by having to read Thank You for Arguing over the summer. All right. And AP English Language now uses it as a standard text. So that's great. But, you know, I actually wrote the book originally for business people. Mm -hmm. So can I talk just – there's ArgueLab, but there's also – I have a website, jheinrichs.com, with other resources that may be more valuable. Oh, sure. Point and us. I, point us. So I do. That's jheinrichs.com, just my name, .com. And liking me on Facebook, jheinrichs, Twitter, the usual, at jheinrichs and so on. You'll find that I do blogs regularly, and they have to do with persuasion that's more of interest to business people. So let's talk. Can we talk apologies just really quickly? Please, let's do it. Okay. So I give corporate talks, and the most popular, the most requested talk is one titled How to Screw Up. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a master at screwing up because I do it a lot. One of the things I do, what the one video I think you're referring to is the one I did on why politicians are so bad at apologizing, Mm -hmm. right? Well, one reason is that, and this is related back to Aristotle, who said that the main cause of anger is belittlement. And by belittlement, he meant the sense that you're being treated as less of a person than you feel you deserve. So you know that one of the main causes of malpractice lawsuits against doctors is belittlement. This idea that the doctor didn't treat the patient seriously, that's belittlement. Okay. So it's a cause of a great deal of anger. Now, when someone is angry at a politician for something, you know, who's the first person to demand an apology? It's going to be their opponent. Why? Well, because an apology is an act of self-belittlement. It's making you shrink in front of your audience. Now, politicians don't like to do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. they they like to be big they like to be huge so and they also don't want to look powerless because a leader is supposed to seem powerful so you know and this is true in the business world as well you don't want to look like you know oh i'm less of a person than we all thought i was that's not very helpful and even in personal relationships now, apology is never enough because it's really hard, especially for a man, because we're kind of built differently in terms of power or our attitudes toward it. We don't like to shrink in front of other people. Right. So as a result, our apologies seem insincere. So sometimes just saying you're sorry is a really good idea. If people expect it, saying you're sorry is fine. But on the other hand, there are more important things that you need to do. And this leads to basic principles of persuasion. First of all, you have to improve your character in front of the other person, whether you're likable and trustworthy. So you can say, here's what I stand for. And I actually strayed from what I stand for. I left the dishes in the sink. I definitely did that. So the first thing you do is you own up to your mistake Mm -hmm. and tell everything. Don't let those emails dribble out. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let them keep finding new things, tell all, everything you know immediately. Every PR person will say that in the corporate world. Secondly, say what you stand for. And actually, if you do this right, committing a mistake can actually give you the opportunity to remind people of what you stand for, of what a good person you really are. And what you do is you reposition your mistake. You reframe it to show that it's this is a way of you're recommitting to your values in the first place. So I left the dishes in the sink. I definitely did that. I'm at fault. You know what a neat person I really am in real life. 
I strayed from that temporarily. It makes me all the more committed to being a neat Nick. And here's how I'm going to fix it in the future. I'm going to set an alarm at the end of every dinner time. And within 10 minutes, every dish has to be out of that sink. Now, obviously I'm kind of overdoing it here, <laughs> but in the business, in the business world, that kind of thing, own up to your mistake, state your values, show how you may have strayed from them temporarily, show you're putting all hands on deck for a fix, show what the plan is, make that very transparent, and then show how things will be better in the future. And that is whether you screwed up personally, whether it's your company that screwed up. I work with Southwest Airlines. They're one of my clients, and I can tell you they're a master at that. With the world's largest domestic airline, they're going to make some mistakes. Their employees will occasionally commit errors. And Southwest is great. They can come out of mistakes like that, making people think, wow, they really are nice people. They're everything I thought Southwest Airlines was. Mm. That's how screwing up can actually enhance your reputation if you do it right. And that's rhetoric at its best. How would you contrast that with Spirit Airlines? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here the instance was, it was your mistake for flying us, you scum. <laughs> and that'll be another $20 for taking my time. <laughs> oh, that's fun. For whew, well, Will you tell me, Jay, is there anything else you want to make sure that we cover off before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things real quick? I've already talked too long, Pete. Oh, but it's been it has been a treat every minute. I'm not even buttering you up or anything. I, I just like this stuff that much. And this is a slam dunk. So so thank you. So let's hear, first of all, uh, is there a, a favorite quote that you have, something you find inspiring or reference often? We already said it. John F. Kennedy asked not. That's just because it's the world's greatest chiasmus, and I use it all the time. And how about a favorite study or research or experiment, something that you find yourself citing as you're explaining your principles? John Gottman, University of Wisconsin, Love Lab, as as they called it, where he videotaped married couples and how they fought or argued. And the couples that argued, trying to find a solution to things, their marriages lasted much longer than those couples where they saw every piece of disagreement as proof of what a jerk the other person was. Mm. Perfect illustration, the difference between a fight and an argument. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? <laughs> Moby Dick. I know that, you know, I shouldn't say it, but I reread it every year. And here's why. It's one of the funniest books ever written. And it's also one of the most serious books ever written. And for me, it's an inspiration of how to take a really difficult subject like rhetoric and somehow find humor in it so that everybody can enjoy it. And how about a favorite habit or personal practice? Every morning I get, I may be oversharing here. Every morning I get up and I say, make this a glorious day. Cool. Out loud. Out loud. I do. I do. I say it out loud. My wife is used to it. (laughs) And you say in the mirror or in a particular pose or are you standing up? I just want to visualize this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the deal is I get up at 4 or 4.30 every morning so that I can get to work before the phone starts ringing. And so to do that, I'm not a morning person. I say it while rolling out of bed. And for some reason, it gives me the momentum to get all the way out of bed so I don't collapse back down into the pillow. Mm. So I do it. I, I do it while I'm getting up. So it comes off probably as a grunt if you <laughs> actually heard it. But that's what I'm really saying. Oh, fun. And how about uh, any favorite tools, uh, things that you use often and find handy? I keep a diary. Mm-hmm. I have since second grade. 
and I call it lunch. And I've been keeping it ever since second grade. Why do I call it lunch? Because when I was in second grade, my teacher told me that if I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, and I did, I would have to keep a diary and write something down every day. I said, what do I write about? She said, oh, write about yourself. I was in second grade. Mm. I had nothing to write about. So I decided, well, someone else said to me, you are what you eat. So every single day I wrote down bologna sandwich for like <laughs> six years. And then gradually I started filling in some details. And to this day, I keep a diary and I call it lunch. Oh, that's fun. And how about, is there any particular, you know, we talked about the climax periods and, and quotable tidbits. Is there any particular nugget you share that, that does seem to often collect the retweets or the Kindle book highlights? Switch the tense. That's what everybody remembers from Thank You for Arguing More Than Anything Else. Switch the tense. Choices have to do with the future, not the past or the present. If you want to do better, don't dwell on the past or the present. Switch the tense. And what would you say is the best place to find you if folks want to learn more and, and check out your stuff? Oh, my gosh. I'm hard to miss. <laughs> so jheinrichs.com, anything with Jay Heinrich, search me there. Uh, people in business might be interested that Bloomberg Business Week did a profile of me. Oh, cool. So, if you look up Jay Heinrichs and Bloomberg Business Week, you'll find the profile. Okay, will do. And do you have a favorite a challenge or parting call to action you'd sound forth to folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? You know, I'm going to go back to switch it to the future. It's such a great experiment. So when you find yourself disagreeing with someone and there's anger in the room, just try this as an experiment. Look at what tense you're in and try changing to the future tense. It's the cool. It's really fun. Try it. Okay. Can do. Jay, this has been so much fun. Thank you. It's a blast. I hope you continue to win your arguments and, and have fun teaching folks to do the same. Pete, I really enjoy this. You have a likable and trustworthy character. Oh, yes. I'm taking that to the bank. <laughs> I understand that this episode went longer than average, and that can be frustrating when you're busy and you have a lot of things you've got to handle over the course of the day. But what I think is really most important right now is figuring out how will we use these rhetorical techniques to get folks on board and persuaded with what we're thinking all the faster so that the minutes we invested pay over really many times over. So did there. That was a little bit of a tense shift from the past to the future. So it's a fun little ninja Jedi trick. I, I find it pretty handy and I hope you do too. So this is fun. This is fun. And I, I hope if you haven't already, you do punch the subscribe button so you don't miss folks like our next guest, Rebecca Morgan. She's got some more pro tips if you're dealing with folks who might be upset, whether they're internal or external customers, how to uh, deal with those situations adeptly, as well as uh, turn that into opportunities for creative goodness. So hope to catch you then. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.